All right, welcome once again. We are moving through a book in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul. It's in the New Testament. It's his letter to the church in Ephesus. Our sermon series is titled Ephesians, Identity in Christ. Today, Paul helps us see that how our identity as being children of God, children of light, how this changes us and oh, how we need change in our lives. The text that we'll be looking at is Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 8 through 21. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then. How you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word, a powerful word, a word that calls us to experience your mercy and your grace. We pray for your spiritual power today as we meditate upon these words and seek to understand them and apply them to our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Change. It's a word I think we would like to strike from our vocabulary. Changes is hard. Change that comes to us from the outside, external change is hard. Circumstances come upon us uh, and we're forced to change where we live. We're forced to change our jobs and change our careers, change our bank accounts, even change our relational status. But as hard as external change is, change that must take place on the inside is even harder. The change one's self is quite difficult. It's, you would think it would be something that we would regularly embrace, but we are often uh, reject the idea of change in our own lives. There's a recent study, medical study, that proves just how resistant to change we are. In April of 2013, 7,000 recent heart attack Uh, survivors from 17 different countries were asked just how willing they were to change their behavior in the three most important areas for success in in, with health with your heart. The area is uh, quitting smoking, changing one's diet and starting to exercise. They were asked, would you be willing to change in all three of these areas so that you could live a healthier, longer life? 
Do you know how many people said yes to all three areas? It'll blow your mind. 50% said that they would stop smoking. 30% said that they would change their diet. 30% said that they would start exercising. But less than 5% said that they would do all, they would change all that was necessary in order to live a longer, healthier life. Change is difficult. So how are we to change? You know, there are many ways in our culture that we are told to change. The predominant among them is this. There's a couple of them. One is, well, you don't even need to change. There's really nothing wrong with you. Um, your problem is you just don't have a high enough self-esteem. If you just thought a little bit higher of yourself like you should, then, then everything would be all right. You don't need to change. And another approach that we commonly hear in our culture is that we are changed by what we do. Um, you have the tools in your hands to change, so therefore go and change. This is what most of the major religions around the world say. They say to go out and, and change things. In Islam, you're given a list of good deeds to do. Uh, in Hinduism, you're given certain sacrifices or prayers to pray. Um, in Buddhism, you are told to, to, to stop with your desires, and therefore you will then experience enlightenment. Even atheism says, well, yes, you need to change, but you can change. You can do it on your own. Change is in in your hand. So the, the most prominent uh, approaches are you don't need to change or you need to change and you have the, the capacity and the wherewithal and the power to do it yourself. Now, throughout the pages of Scripture, both of these belief systems have are challenged. What we see in Scripture is, and what I hope we see in our own lives as we meditate upon Scripture, is we're not the people we know we should be. We're in desperate need of change. We don't love our neighbors like we love ourselves. We wake up thinking about me and me alone. Most of the time, well, unless you've got kids, you've got kids, okay? Crying kids. But we often live very selfish, self-centered lives. We don't love as we know we should love. And, and even worse than that, we, we worship created things rather than the creator. Scripture shows us that we are in need of change. Scripture also challenges this assumption that if left into our own hands, we're actually able to, capable to, to make the change that, that is necessary in our life. But what Scripture shows us, and I think the scariest part, is that, is that we're far worse off than we had really imagined. And therefore, the hope really isn't in our hands. The magnitude of the change that we need is so great, and our capacity is so small, well, we need God to do the work. And the other beautiful thing about Scripture is it shows us, it points us to this gospel message. It it tells us that that God above, who created us in his image, has a great desire to bring change into our lives. He is the one who begins this change process in your life. He is the one who sends his spirit to fill you with the power in order to be able to carry it out. He changes our hearts and he gives us his precepts to live by and he gives us his spirit so that we can walk in his ways. That is what Paul is addressing here in this passage. Uh, He's been showing us that the change that is necessary is as different as light is from darkness. And he says that in Christ, that change is ours and God is doing this work in his people. It is a hope that we share in Christ. What we see this morning is is that God just doesn't call us to change. He provides all that we need to change. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the profile for change, the pattern for change, and the power for change. First, the profile for change. Now, 
I had a really silly dream the other night. And um, I had this dream that I was picked, chosen, to selected to be on the U.S. World Cup soccer team. <laughs> and that I had to hurry to get to Brazil to practice with the team. Now, I mean, I played soccer in high school, but I stunk back then. I don't, you know, so, uh, but this is the dream I had. It was awesome. So I'm having this dream that I've been, been, been chosen. But I, I knew beyond a doubt that my skills weren't on par with what was necessary. And, and so I knew that, that I really wasn't selected based on my skills. And, and so, therefore, I didn't know who did the work, but somebody in power said, you know what, we want Mark Middlecoff on this team. And at some point during the dream, I realized, but not everybody else will. There are people like, like blogging about me. Look at how bad he is. What the heck is he doing on the team? My grandmother can play better than, than he can. And it's true. I'm like 48 years old. I got bad knees, bad back. I don't belong on the team. But I also had this overwhelming sense that if I wasn't placed on the team because of how good I was, then I must have been placed based on grace. And mercy. And so I knew that my position on this World Cup soccer team was secure because it wasn't based upon how good I was, but was based upon what someone else had chosen to do for Mark Middlecoff. Now, I also had this realization because of this identity that I had as, as being this World Cup soccer player that I was going to play the best that I could play. And it didn't even matter if I made the team, uh, if, I, if, I, if I played in any games or not. I was going to be the guy in the practice squad that out-hustled everybody, outran everybody, and persevered through the, the most tiring uh, circumstances. I was going to be the Rudy of the U.S. Uh, <laughs> soccer team. Those of you who don't know what that is, Netflix it. Rudy, great, great movie. That was going to be me. Now, this silly dream I had, unfortunately, didn't come true. I did wake up. I had other weird things that happened, too, like some Polish guy was on the team. I was like, how does that happen? But anyway, it's <laughs> probably a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> All right. But Paul helps, this dream kind of helps us see what Paul's getting at. This, 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 Paul shows us the profile of a Christian. And the Christian is someone that God has taken for his team. All right, uh, that, is, that he's brought into his family. And his selection isn't based upon how good you are. His selection is based purely on his mercy and his grace towards you. It, God brings us into his family as children. Just as you, you as a child weren't, had, no, you had nothing good to offer. You were just born into the family. That's what God does for us. We don't earn our way. It's through Christ and his work that we are brought into God's family. It's his work that brings us there. And so throughout this entire letter to the Ephesians, Paul has been driving home this, um, this idea of, this, of, the, of the believer's new identity in Christ. In chapter 1, we saw that God had adopted us. from Before time even began, he, he chose to set his heart upon his children, that, that in love he predestined us for adoption, and that in him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness for our trespasses. And all of this, as it says, is according to the riches of God's grace. And today we read that we are his children of light. Look at verse 8. It says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This would have come to, as welcome news to the, the Ephesians who read it the first time. And it should be beautiful news to our ears this morning. 
Did you notice the grammar here? What's going on? It doesn't read at one time you were in darkness. What does it say? No, you were darkness. These unbelievers were dark. Their hearts and minds were dark. They were consumed with gratifying selfish desires. Not that they couldn't do nice things for the neighbors every now and then, but the whole trajectory of their life was bound up in self. This is who they were. Paul says, one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now you are light. This is the radical transformation that God does for his children. Once you were dark, now you are light. Now, before we go thinking, wow, this is a great work that I did. (laughs) You know, Paul makes sure that we see that this isn't you cleaning yourself up and taking yourself from dark to being light. We see here that Paul carefully adds, you are light, what? In the Lord. (laughs) All believers are In Christ Jesus, the perfect life that Jesus lived by your faith in him, that life is now yours. When he died on the cross, that was you upon the cross. Your your sins were hidden in Christ. When Christ was risen from the grave, you rose with him. You are united to Christ. He isn't just a distant act, but rather by faith you've been brought through time and space to Christ. Your life is hidden in him. This light is in the Lord. And because Jesus is light, he called himself that, all right? The light has come into the world. The world preferred darkness and ran from the light. Um, but to all who received him, they gave the right to be called children of God. Jesus is the light with a capital L. And as we are found in Christ, we belong to him individually. But as a church, we are the body of Christ. It would naturally make sense then that we are light, <laughs> Because our life is now found in Christ. We are bound up in Christ. This is who we now are. Your identity, your profile as a Christian is a child of light. And so Paul is making this argument. I hope you see it. He's saying, you are children of light. Now, live as light. This is your nature now. You're no longer dark. You are light. Now live as light. Paul knows the key to change. The key to you changing is walking in the new identity that you already have. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it. I used to smoke, all right? It was before my soccer days. All right, no. Um, It's not something I'm proud of, all right? I wish it was a dream, okay? I'm not saying do this, but I I did that, all right? And I got addicted. And I tried to quit a number of times. You know what it finally was that allowed me to quit? I took on a new identity. I saw myself as a non-smoker. And so ashtrays became stinky, stinky, gross things. Uh, Closets began to smell. There was just a smoky, stinky closet full of smoky, stinky clothes. I had a new identity of a non-smoker, and that's how the behaviors flowed out of that. You see, that's what Paul is saying here. You have this identity as a child of light. The behaviors that should flow out of that is, is what? Light. Christian. God has graciously made you his son or daughter. You are a child of light. Now walk in light. Now in verses 9 and 10, Paul builds on this profile of a child of light. And he shows us two things that characterize our walk. They are uh, fruitfulness and discernment. First, fruitfulness. Verse 9 says, check this out. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And this is a weird illustration, but imagine if adolescent peach trees could talk. 
All right, this is kind of dreamy stuff. But imagine if an adolescent peach tree could talk and, and he's like, hey, Gary, it's me. It's me. Yeah. Yeah. From the sapling farm. Yeah. Down a few rows to your left. Your other left. Yeah. Hey, guess what I found out? We're peach trees. I thought we were just normal trees with leaves. But look at these. They're blossoms. We're going to make peaches. Right. I know that's kind of silly, but the point is peach trees are fruitful and they make what? Peaches, children of light. And when they, when we are fruitful, we make what light and light is defined as all that is good and right and true. If understand this, if there's anything good in this world, whether you see it in a believer or an unbeliever, anything that is good in this world, it has its source is light in heaven. It's goodness. It's it's uh, righteousness. It's truthfulness comes from heaven above. We are to produce we are to be fruitful. In addition to bearing fruit, Paul writes that we're to and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I like this word, try. It's a, it's a really good word to have in the Bible. Uh, it, it, it shows us at least two things. Try means what? It means effort is necessary, right? This is not something that happens by sitting on the couch. You don't just discern the Lord by, just, by, by, not, t- by not trying. You don't discern what the Lord's will is and what pleases him without trying. Effort is necessary. The other thing that it tells us in addition to effort, is uh, the word try communicates this. It communicates that you are free to fail. Try. Try to discern what pleases the Lord. Paul is saying, it's like he's saying, you know what, I know you want to please the Lord. Try to please the Lord. And when you fail, there's abundant grace for you. I recently read a story of a grandmother who raised her grandson from the time he was born until he was three years old. Um, Mom and dad both worked hard and they didn't have enough money for uh, for daycare. And so she got to raise this child. But after three years, the parents had to move, move to California. And of course, they took their son with them. Right. And so it was a while before, you know, the grandmother had seen the grandchild. But a friend of the grandmother was traveling in California and went to visit the family and was talking with the little um, grandson. And and the grandson said, are you going to see grandma? And she's like, yes, I will see your grandmother. He says, "Okay, I have something to give her. And he reaches in his pocket, pulls something out and puts it in her hand. You know what it was? A piece of lint. They said, oh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give that to grandma. Sure. Sometime later, she discarded it. She returned back to Gaius' grandma's house. And grandma was filled in on the story. And she told her everything about the little boy and how he had taken out the lint. And she said, oh, I wish you wouldn't have done that. It was all he had to give me. And I would have been pleased to receive it. Please understand, that's the picture of our Lord with us. We feel like we've got to give him some big, grand, powerful achievements. And they seem so big, we don't even try them. The Lord isn't pleased with the grandness of your attempt. He's pleased with the heart of love and devotion behind your attempts to please him. And that's what we do. We desire to please Christ. Why? Because... We love him. And when you when you love someone, you try to discern what pleases them. 
And the, the implied thing here is, and then you do it, right? You don't just, you know, try to discern what pleases the Lord and say, I know what pleases the Lord and I'm going to sit in the pew and not do it. No, we do it. Consider my wife. We married 15 years and, and she loves me. She desires to, to please me. And, and she knows, like, what I like to eat. So if we were to go out to a brand new restaurant, never been there before, she could look at the menu and with a high degree of accuracy, she could order what I was going to order, right? Isn't that true? You've experienced that. You know someone well enough. So too the Christian, because we love Christ, uh, um, we're, we're devoted to him. That devotion manifests itself in a greater and greater knowing what pleases him. So that's the profile of, of, of the Christian. And that's what is meant to change us. This, this identity that we have as children of light, we're to, we're to bear fruit. Uh, we're to discern what pleases the Lord. This is how change takes place. Not for the pattern of change, the pattern, pattern for change. There's a book out, popular book, titled Eat This, Not That. Um, some of you don't need this book because you're married to someone who says, no, eat this, not that. But for the rest of us, um, there's this little book. And, and so like, and on the cover, on the cover, it says, eat this. Briars, uh, Mrs. Fields, chocolate chunk cookie dough ice cream. But don't eat that. Ben and Jerry's, same name, chocolate chip cookie dough. Ben and Jerry's is twice the calories, three times the fat. This being Memorial Weekend, there's also a thing on hot dogs. It says, eat this, Hebrew National hot dogs. Don't eat that, the Oscar Mayer low-fat classic beef frank. I think I got the name right. That was from memory. That was pretty good. So the book is just full of these suggestions. Now, as most of my illustrations here this morning, what in the world does that have to do with anything uh, that I'm talking about? Well, in the remaining verses here, it's very much Paul is like he's giving us an eat this, not that. But it's more of a do this, not that statement. Verse 11, he says, take no part in unfruitful works, but instead expose them. Walk not as wise, unwise, but as wise in verse 15. Verse 17, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In verse 18, he says, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the spirit. So. The apostle is giving us a set of do this, not that statements. Now, many people think that that's what the Bible is. It's a big book of do this, not that statements. The Bible is simply a book of rules and regulations. And that if you just do them well enough, the deity is going to go, well, that a boy, look at, look at her go. She's just great. We're going to welcome her into my family. All right. Um, this is the way much of the world approaches the Bible. But not just much of the world. Christians approach the Bible this way, too. In my years of ministry, what I've come to observe is there's like three phases that Christians have in how they interact with Scripture. The first phase is the phase where, where people look at the Bible uh, for, for lists of good behavior. They come to the Bible and they look for the, the do this and, and not that. And that's a good thing to do. And they go and they follow these precepts and it really does help you. But some Christians never get past that point, right? The Bible is just a book for our behaviors. But some do move past it, and at that point, they come to see um, the Bible more as a doctrinal textbook. It's meant to inform your mind as to, well, the right way to think. And so, 
the doctrines of the Bible are understood, and, and we use them to validate our logic or to win people to our points of view. We see this, all the different debates within the denominations. And some people never get past that point. Truth is, some, some Christians and some whole groups of Christians are, uh, are mired in this, in these two phases. They believe that living as children of light is essentially about right behavior or right thought. But at some point, hopefully, we move from these two uh, phases to the proper understanding what the Bible really is meant to do and to communicate to us. The Bible is not a, it's not a, a manual for right living or a textbook for right thinking. No, what the, what the, what the Bible is for is it's, it's meant to show us and bring us to Christ. It's meant to bring us into a relationship with God. That's the point of Scripture's. Or to borrow the, the terminology from our passage, the Bible isn't so much about God's light shining in the world to tell us how to behave, nor is it about his light shining in the world to enlighten us as to what to believe, but rather his light has shined into the world so that we may know him. So when the Bible presents us with these do this, not that, we must remember that through these precepts, we come to know God, we come to know Christ. These are his good and holy precepts. And we come to find out um, who God is, what he delights in. We, try, we come to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And the more we walk in them, the more we know the Lord. So Paul lays out for us a pattern here for living as children of the light. And the pattern should seem familiar to us. He's building on something earlier in the letter. I don't, if you're familiar with the Ephesians, if you haven't been with us, but Paul, Paul says um, that we're to put off the old self and put on the new self. And here he continues with that. Do this, not that. We'll just quickly go through what they are. The first, do this, not that, in verse 11, it says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You know, there's nothing that darkness could ever produce that would please the Lord, so avoid it. That's Paul's point. But more so than that, he says, to expose it. Now, this isn't a call for us as Christians to point our finger at people and say, now you're in the dark, you know, um, you know, and, and, and exposing just how unfruitful their ways are. No, I think what Paul is getting at here is more in line with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And then he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Christian, as Christ's light light shines through you, it penetrates the darkness around us and it it exposes the hopefully the, the folly of living in darkness. Hopefully it calls people to say, I want to be different. I want to repent. I want to turn. I want my life to glorify God on a more practical no, this is you if you're a student. This is, this is you befriending that kid in school that everyone belittles and picks upon, right? That's light in your school. This is for you in your workplace as your boss literally chews you out in front of a, the whole break room. And you, just, you determined uh, to shine the light of Christ and, and reply by turning, uh, turning the other cheek towards your boss. Even while all your coworkers are just waiting for you to just like 
chew them a new one, right? That's, what, that's light into the workplace. That's what Paul's getting at here. The next do this, not that statement um, is verse 15. He says, look, um, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. You know, it's one thing to have knowledge. It's a far better thing to have wisdom. I think we all probably know some people who are really book smart, but they just don't make all the, the best decisions, right? Maybe that's you. I don't know. Sorry. But, um, you know, we all know people like that. Now, Paul gives us a reason for why wisdom should be cherished. Did you see what that was? He says, only with wisdom will we make the best use of our time here on earth. My friends, how you use your time on earth is so important. You have an opportunity to be fruit, uh, to, to show light, to, to bring the light of Christ to this world. When we're wise, we use our time wisely. We don't waste the hours that we have. We make the best use of our time. Then next do this, not that statement, builds more on this wisdom. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If you're a believer here, what Paul is calling you to do, what he's calling me to do, is he's calling us to filter out all options before us. Every option that doesn't please the Lord. Whatever options you have in your life, does it please the Lord or not? And just consider all the many choices that face you each week, all the decisions you make, the little ones, the big ones. Do you want to avoid making foolish choices? It's simple. Maybe not all that simple, but Paul makes it sound simple. Seek to understand the will of the Lord and do that. Think of all the choices that you make that would just, the options would just strip away if you really looked at it and said, you know what, I've got a lot of great options here, but which one really serves the Lord and not just me and my own desires? How do we do this, though? Um, Certainly meditate on Scripture, absorb it, soak it in, uh, pray, pray for guidance. Surround yourself with wise people who've made decisions like this before. Ask for their counsel. But even then, there will be times when you don't know, right? What is the will of the Lord? I think that's why earlier Paul said, try to discern what pleases the Lord. We try. Uh, Sometimes we step out in faith and, and we fall on our faces. But the Lord is pleased with our best efforts done out of love for him. No matter their outcome. The last do this, not that statement is pretty important. So it's really just our last point, and it's going to go pretty quickly. The power to change. What is this power to change that we're, we're looking for? I don't know about you. I don't have the power to change. I probably, I, we kind of chuckle at that 4.3% of the people. I probably would be the other. I don't know. What's, what's, what's the math? 95.7%? I would be them. All right? We laugh at them, but that's probably us. You know? I need power to change, and so do you. Verse 18, though, it's kind of weird. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine. So people say, okay, so beer, is that all right? No. Um, <laughs> do not get drunk on wine. You're going to see why this is, uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, at first glance, this appears to be just like more moral instruction, right? Things to, to do in a moral way. And it's true, there is a moral teaching here, you know. 
children of, of God are, are to avoid excess drinking. They're, you know, it lowers our inhibitions. It, it, it um, lessens our ability to fend off darkness. So there's, there's truth there. But there's a subtle turn in the apostles' words. Did you, did you see it here? What we might have expected Paul to write was this. Don't get drunk, but instead be sober. Right? But that's not what he says. He actually says, you know, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Being filled, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God himself, right? So be filled with God. And throughout this letter, this word to fulfill um, is, is an important word. Back in chapter 3, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know all the dimensions of God's love, that they may be filled with all the fullness of of God. That's a wonderful thing to have in our lives. All the fullness of God. Please understand this. The salvation that God gives you is far more than just forgiveness of sins. It's God coming and taking up residence in you, filling you with his Holy Spirit, empowering you to even think thoughts about God, to even long for what is what is um, good and true in this world. He fills us with his spirit. The spirit of Christ dwells in us. So really, Paul's command to, to not get drunk on wine is a far broader in scope. He, he's referring uh, us to us. He's saying that we are to empty our lives of anything that in this world that would hold us under its influence. Anything. And be in, instead be filled with the spirit. Real quickly, four things, realities of being spirit-filled. First one is in verse 19. He says, we're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. My friends, this is the horizontal aspect of worship. So often we get tied up in it. It's just me and Jesus thing, you know. No, we're the body of Christ. We are gathered here. Um, we, we love each other. We care for each other. When we're singing these songs that are rich in theology, we should be thinking about our neighbor and our love for them and how great it is for them to be here with us and experiencing this mercy and grace of God. There's a horizontal aspect to our worship, but there's also the the priority of the vertical. The second half of verse 19 says, we're to sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart. Let me ask you this. When you sing in a worship service, are you merely vocalizing the words on paper? Or are you singing to Christ? Christians don't just sing about Christ. They sing to their Lord. He's alive. He's reigning in heaven. He's there. He loves our worship. He loves us. We sing to Christ. Third, we see the Holy Spirit empowers us to be grateful in all circumstances. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, children of light just don't thank their Heavenly Father when things are going well for them. They actually thank them through all circumstances, even during the midst of suffering. Many of you know firsthand the thankfulness that the Holy Spirit plants in your hearts in the midst of these difficult trials in your life. And isn't it true? God often uses our difficult circumstances and our trials in order to change us the most. So we should be thankful for them. It's counterintuitive. It's not the way in which the world thinks. The world runs away from troubles. 
Christians run to Christ in the midst of our troubles. We give thanks to God in the midst of our troubles. Four, lastly, we see that the Holy Spirit empowers us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we're going to talk more about this next week. Uh, some of you know the passage. I'm not going to mention it, but it's, uh, it's a challenging one, to say the least. And I got one last day in the week to work on the sermon. So, anyway... Uh, but we're to revere Christ. That is, we esteem him and we submit to him. We, and therefore, because we submit to Christ and we love him and we submit to his authority, we submit to others, just as Christ submits to his heavenly Father. And so instead of pressing our rights, instead of using our position for our own advantage, we gladly submit. This is not something that comes naturally to us. This is a powerful work of the Holy Spirit in us to change us, to be more like Christ. So this is the source of our power to change. The the Holy Spirit of Christ is planted in God's children, his children of light. And that is our source for power to change. Now, where does this leave us this morning? Hopefully it leaves you with a desire to cry out to heaven and say, God, change me. I know I need to change. And I know that change left in my own hands is going to fail. I'm thankful that that you sent your son Jesus so so that I'm on that World Cup team, not by my merits. Uh, you know, I'm a child of God based on what Christ has done for me. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death that I deserve so that I have peace with God and I become a child of light. Some of you here, you, you, need, you need to experience that. You need to stop looking at the Bible or Christianity as a, as a group who just gather around a book of rules and we, we pat ourselves on the back and say, look how good I was today. That's not Christianity. Right. There are good there's good uh, laws that that guide us. And and the Bible isn't just a book to to teach you what to think. You know, before I was a Christian, one of the last things I wanted to think was like a Christian. Right. So, you know, it's not a powerful argument there. Right. So but, you know, God's message in Scripture, his message to you this morning is, is 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 that he wants you to know him. And Scripture brings you to Him, to Christ, brings you into God's family. So, uh, hopefully, if you're here today, you're still pondering Christ, you would trust in Him. Give your life to Christ. Experience this forgiveness that comes through Christ and Christ alone. For those of us here, I think most of us, we, you know, we love Christ, we belong to His family. Um, consider this. You are a child of light. This is who you are. You once were dark. That's done with. You are a child of light. So, so rejoice in that. That's your identity. And, and consider that, that now, now you're called to do what you were made to do. Be fruitful for God and for his kingdom. You were made to discern what pleases your Lord. And we're foolish to, to try to discern any other way of living, right? And yes, there are do this, don't do that in the, in the Bible. But, but they're meant to reflect God's character to us. These statements are, aren't meant to, for us to do something, pat ourselves on the back and say, now I got this Christian thing done. You know, No, it's meant to show us the character of our Savior and what he's done for us, that we might be his children. Our identity, our profile is meant to, to drive us um, to be fruitful in the way in which God has now made us. We're to discern what pleases the Lord, and we're, we're to try, right? We're to try. Discern what pleases Him, and try to do it. And know that there is mercy and grace for when we fail. And to know also that, that, that you're not alone, that, that this is in God's hands. His, His Holy Spirit is the power by which you and I even begin to want to change, uh, let alone change. And he powerfully changes us through his spirit. As we turn to this Lord's table here in a few minutes, 
Let's be reminded. It shows us God's love for his children. And after we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're going to have a chance to sing. And not just words on a, a page. We, get a, we don't just get to sing about Jesus. We get to sing to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your desire to change us. Were it not for you taking the steps to come and to show yourself, to reveal yourself, to give of yourself, giving your son Jesus that we can have life in him. We may experience being changed from darkness to light. Um, we, we would be hopeless. We thank you that you have pledged yourself to us. We now pledge ourselves to you um, that we may live for you and for your glory. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.